Hello, one and all. Welcome to the A to the K Wrestling Show. We're joining us today is the one and only Duke, the dumpster, Drozzy. Duke, thanks for joining us, man. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, and I really appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, oh, thanks, man. It's an honor, honestly. Um, so we figured we'd uh, we'd start off, obviously, um, talking about uh, sort of when you first joined WWE, I suppose. Um, so we'll go back to sort of when you joined, and um, obviously occupational gimmicks were were sort of the big thing at the time for the well, what was the WWF. Um, so I just wonder if you could sort of tell us sort of how the gimmick came about and sort of how you learned that you'd be sort of portray portraying a garbage man. I actually came up with the gimmick when I was right. wrestling down in Florida because um, I knew I had to have something like that to spark Vince McMahon's interest when I decided to try and make a move and see yeah. if I could um, get up in the World Wrestle Federation. So I was wrestling down in Florida as the garbage man. Well, I was originally, I had this name, Rocco Gibraltar, and I wanted to um, have a cool gimmick with it that I knew Vince would like. And um, I was just brainstorming one day and I came up with the garbage man, Rocco Gibraltar. And that's what I was wrestling as down in Florida for about a year and a half, two years before I took a shot at going to the WWF. You know, I was just taping every match I did and trying to put together as much footage as I could to create like a promotional tape and package. And that's how it started. Amazing. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, fascinating. Like, uh, obviously, you think, you know, with a lot of people who join uh, WWE at that time, it's kind of like, well, oh, what gimmick am I, you know, am I going to be given that kind of thing? So it's it's fascinating that you were ahead of the curve to think, well, what kind of gimmick can I come up with that would get me in there, which is, uh, you know, a unique way to look at it. Um, th there was a wild rumor, and I don't know whether this is true, that um, obviously you, you were ranked number 500 on the PWI list. And I think there was something said around Vince McMahon one day going, oh, you know, he flipped to the back of the, the thing and was like, I can make anybody a star. Who's this guy? I'm going to hire him and, I'm, you know, I'm going to make him a star. Is, is there any truth to that? Did any of that happen? Or well, obviously based on what you said, like the sending tapes in, was that not the case? Not a single bit of truth to that, actually. <laughs> it's funny because I was, like I said, I was wrestling down in Florida and there was a guy down there that was a wrestler. He wrestled by the name of Bobby Rogers and he had claimed that he was the grandson or something of Buddy Rogers, but he wasn't. But anyway, he knew a lot. He had a lot of inside information about the business. And I guess apparently he knew Bill Apter and they were looking for a funny gimmick to put at number 500 on that year 1993 for the pwi 500 so um i guess he and he spoke to to bill after and those guys and came to me and said would you be interested in doing it i was like oh yeah of course you know yeah i'll do it and this is before anything with wwf and but it was just coincidental that shortly after i had agreed to do this and they wrote that they did that magazine they put me at 500 but they just put me in there as the garbage man, first of all. But mm -hmm. then um, shortly thereafter, I actually, I walked up to Vince McMahon at a Natpee convention and pitched him with my tape and my promo package to get my job. So it had nothing to do with PWI. Now they wrote a story because I have had a dark match tryout, like literally right after they published that magazine. So they just took it upon themselves to embellish the story a bit and right. say that it was because of them that I got a tryout <laughs> in the, the job with the WWF, but that's not how it happened. 
<laughs> and the crowd so wasn't did. cheering 500, 500 either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so while we're talking about the sort of the process of signing with WWE, um, can I ask, was it, um, was it sort of back then? Was it Jim Ross who signed you, and, and did they give you any sort of idea what they they planned to do with with, you, with yourself and the gimmick? No, it was JJ Dillon. He was the head of talent relations at the time, and um, I did everything through him, pretty much. You know, the contract stuff. They just sent it to my house. I wasn't one of the lucky ones that got to go to Vince's house. I wasn't important enough, but uh, they uh, just the, I dealt with JJ uh, and and. Um, yeah, that's that. That was kind of the go-to guy for for talent relations. Jim Ross was not. I think he was already coming into the company, but he wasn't in the capacity of talent relations or anything like right, that yeah, quite yet. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, obviously, um, you know, when when I was growing up watching watching the business, I was a big fan of like Mr. Perfect. And I remember when he joined. There was all these kind of vignettes and stuff of him doing all this, uh, these kind of crazy things like um, athletic things and stuff. And obviously, when when you first joined, there was those vignettes of you like throwing a, a trash can, bouncing it off the wall, and like and into a dumpster and things like that. Whose idea was it to kind of come up with those? And um, you know, what were your thoughts on, on those? Shane McMahon, he he produced yeah. them. When I flew up to do my vignettes, he he picked me up and I rode around with him all day. He was working at the uh, studio then. He. At that point, I think Shane was working at all the different aspects of the company one by one, you know, just kind of to learn every part of the business. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was him. Me and him sat down at a table. He gave me the name. He said, your name's going to be Duke the Dumpster Drossy, we think. And uh, he said, we started pitch- We started throwing ideas back and forth about vignettes and verbiage and stuff like that and between me and him we probably came up with i don't know man five or six vignettes just that day and we did more after that even but yeah a lot of that stuff was his idea he was the one that came up with the idea for the uh, play on the commercial with michael jordan and uh, larry bird where it bounced off this and flew over the yeah but i threw that garbage can over that warehouse <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> nice. but uh yeah that was all his a lot of that was his idea man i think he was like 23 years old at the time oh, wow. um so obviously you went coming into wwe well i keep saying wwe sorry wwf at the time um you sort of began on the main roster you started a feud with uh, jerry the king lawler and um, he sort of infamous, infamously hit you with a with a trash can and like many people see this as like the the sort of the first time the WWF went hardcore. Um, was that sort of the intention of, of that spot? And and did you sort of realize at the time that it was going to be such a sort of a notable thing? No, I just wanted so I know I was talking to Jerry Lawler before we went out and it was on live television, on live Raw. And uh, we were going to do the King's Court and we were just trying, we we're throwing back and forth some ideas of how we were going to do it. And they told us what they wanted the office they just wanted him to run and charge me and and hit me from behind and jump me uh and that was it but jerry asked me he goes would be okay if i grabbed your garbage can and hit you with it and i said yeah absolutely because at that point man i had been hitting people left and right down in florida with that garbage can i hit everybody and um and when i was a heel i got hit with it so i was like yeah let's let's do it man and so we asked, we at kind of asked permission. We just asked one road agent 
It was Jack Lanza. And he goes, he was like, fuck it. It's live television. <laughs> just do it. And uh, so we went out and we did it the way you saw it. And when we got back in the back, they freaked out. They were like, what uh, What did you do that for? How come you did it? They were seriously, they were yeah. upset because their product was supposed to be geared towards kids and just being family entertainment, the original PG mm-hmm. era, of course. So we kind of got in trouble for that. And I, and I think that hindered me a bit, you know, coming out of the gates like that, doing something really without asking permission mm-hmm. so much. And, um, yeah, we got a lot of heat for that. And then he had to apologize on TV the next week, and it was really stupid. And that just kind of – that just really killed the whole angle. And we ended up not even getting a pay-per-view match out of it. We just ended on Monday Night Raw with Doink and Dink getting involved, and that was the end of it. Um, it could have been so much more, but yeah. it was hot. We started off hot with that garbage can, but then they just wouldn't – they wouldn't push it. So – no, it's such a shame, really, isn't it, to think like, you know, you guys literally the first time anything like that really happened, um, you know, and, and yeah, it's a shame you couldn't build off, off the back of that. Um, and, you know, if they, as they realized later, that probably would have been a good idea to, to do. <laughs> but, yeah, because in months, I, you know, when, I, when I eventually left in 1996, it was like probably just not even a year later, they were doing a dumpster match with the New Age Outlaws and Mick Foley mm-hmm. and Terry Funk. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's just it's all about timing in the wrestling business you know yeah. i had some bad timing at different times yeah crazy man um obviously you know we talked about jerry one of, one of your other notable feuds was uh of course with uh triple h um my only but... other notable my only other feud. <laughs> yes <laughs> yes um but obviously around that time what was it like working with triple h with all the kind of you know politics and the click and and stuff like that um, I understood the politics of it. I understood what the click was and the power that they had. So I knew I wasn't going to beat him on any major pay-per-view or anything. I mean, we, we traded, we wrestled on the road together for a long time and we went back and forth, you know, about 50, 50 winning and losing against each other. But, um, he was good to work with though. I mean, uh, Paul was always willing to do anything, try anything, come up with new ideas. And he earned his paycheck when he worked with me because I threw him all over the place. And he took it and he never complained. So uh, I got to I got to I got to give that to him. I mean, well, speaking of uh, Paul being willing to do anything, uh, he's also obviously responsible for, for shaving your head. Uh, yeah. which led to a match in your house, uh, which Triple H ultimately won. Um, so can I ask sort of whose idea was it was, uh, sorry, whose idea that it was to, to shave your head? And um, sort of, it always felt like there should have been like a, a revenge element to that, which we never got. And um, if we can sort of elaborate on that as well. Yeah, well, the way it all went down is the reason I got that angle was because my contract was up. My original two-year contract was up, and I was about ready to quit because they weren't doing anything with me. They were just killing me as Duke the Dumpster. And um, we sat down. I had a meeting with Vince, and Jim Ross was there, and Bruce Pritchard, and we just talked about it, you know. And they um, told me they were going to give me this angle with Triple H, And I said, look, I know I'm not going to beat him, but I want some kind of revenge at the end when all is said and done. Of course, Vince, he agreed to that. But more importantly, the gist of the conversation in that room was I wanted to change. I wanted to turn heel. 
And I wanted to kind of shade, I wanted to get rid of the dumpster gimmick and just become Duke Drosy. And without missing a beat, it was Jim Ross who said, well, if we're going to do that, let's change your appearance and uh, we could cut your hair as part of this angle. And I remember I sat back and I looked at everybody in that room and, uh, and that's when I said, I said, look, I'm willing to do this. I don't have a problem doing it, but I just got to get revenge in the end. I know I'm not going to pin him and I know I ain't going to cut his hair off, but there has to be some big payoff, payback, and there's got to be a creative way for me to turn heel. And they're like, well, you know, Vince, like, yeah, of course, pal. Sure. Yeah, of course. And then as soon as we finished our angle, I just kind of went right back to, you know, getting my ass kicked by all the new heels, except now I just had short hair. So that was where, that was the beginning of the end. And But that's where it came from. It was a Jim Ross, his idea to put it on TV as part of the angle. Yeah, it's crazy that you didn't, um, you know, didn't manage to actually pay that off and, and you know, move on from it. It's, it's such a wasted opportunity, really, um, off the back of that storyline. There was a lot of wasted opportunities in those days. And I mean, not just with me, but I saw them with other people too. It just depended where you were in the pecking order and, you know, who had Vince's ear and, you know, that's just kind of how it went. But there's also something to be said for getting yourself over. I mean, which I didn't understand back then, but, you know, there's always ways to get yourself over. I mean, look what Rocky, look what Rocky Maivia did. He got himself over and became The Rock. So everybody has the potential to do that. And looking back on it, in hindsight, I should have done that. But um, I just got angry and took my ball and went home, even though my ball wasn't as substantial as, like, Stone Cold Steve Austin's when he went home. Nobody really cared when I went home. But that's how it went down, you know, and that's how the business works. And you got to be able to handle rejection. And a lot of people yeah. can't handle rejection and they get angry and they go home. So that's how it happened. Yeah, no, it's uh, such a shame, obviously, that, we, you know, we didn't get that payoff. But, um, yeah, as you say, it's, it's what it is. Um, but obviously, flat, you know, flash forward now, 25 years later, and, you know, Triple H is effectively running the business. Um, did you ever get that vibe at the time? Obviously, you know, he's part of the clique and this kind of thing. Did you ever see that, you know, you know, we, we, I guess what I'm trying to say is, was he as passionate about like the business and trying to, you know, maybe position himself that way as early as back when he was working with yourself? Yeah, he was always, he was always passionate about the business. Honestly, the whole clique was really passionate about the business. Mm. I mean, they would sit around and talk wrestling all the time. Uh, The main difference though, was a lot of those other guys got, you know, did drugs and drank a lot of alcohol uh, on, in a lot of their free time. Whereas, Triple H didn't drink any alcohol. He didn't do any drugs. He was just focused on the business and he was always that way. And I think that, um, you know, Vince McMahon later noticed that. And uh, I mean, hell, how else would he even have a chance at dating his daughter? I mean, that would that would have never happened in the wrestling business. But he was so dedicated to the business. uh, And I, I know I realize that Vince knew that. So, yeah, back in those days, you could even see it, no doubt. Awesome. So, um, obviously, we saw Vince McMahon retire earlier this year, which, uh, I mean, a lot of people sort of never expected. They always figured, he'd, you know, we'd never see him retire. Um, well, can I ask, sort of, given that sort of monumental change, and um, obviously a lot of people are talking about Vince as a person, um, 
am I okay to ask sort of what your relationship was like with Vince? It was okay. It was he's, He was a promoter and I was a wrestler. I was wrestling talent on his main roster. And um, you had to understand what that meant. If you thought you were friends with Vince, you were only friends with Vince as far as he could make money with you, mm. honestly. Now, later in life with some people that were there for long periods of time, making a lot of money over years, I'm sure he had developed personal relationships with. But um, I could always talk to Vince. Now, he wouldn't always listen, but I could always talk to him. Um but uh, he was a promoter, man. That's just kind of the way he was. And with Vince, Vince is a bit of a power freak, man. He was kind of a megalomaniac, uh, which is what I, part of what I think got him into some of this trouble, man. He, he thought he was invincible and untouchable. Mm. Um, but he worked very hard. I mean, nobody worked. Nobody outworked Vince McMahon in the wrestling business, for sure. So... You know, it can become like a double-edged sword, man. You get so much power, you become drunk with power, and then you lose track of what got you there and what you need to be doing. But um, he was always very – you could always talk to him. I know that changed later on in the business. People weren't allowed to really talk to him as much. They had to go talk to writers and all that crap. But I talked – we all talked to Vince. We would just sit in a line outside of his office at TV and wait our turn to talk – to go and sit down and talk to him. So – he, he was always willing to talk and willing to listen to a certain extent. And um, and he was a promoter. So if you understood that going in, you'd be okay. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Um, obviously, uh, you've mentioned in a few other interviews um, that there was a time when you used to ride with the likes of, obviously, Brett and, uh, and Steve Austin as well. You know, what was it like being on the road with them two? And is there any kind of favorite memories from, from your time riding with, with, with them two? Riding with Austin was always fun. It was just, it was always funny. He's funny as hell, man. And uh, we always had fun. Neither one of us was making much money at that. You know, a lot of most people there weren't really making a whole lot of money, and so it was hard to be excited about going to work some days. But we still made it fun and goofed around and had a good time. Brett Brett was an interesting character. He he was uh, a lot more quiet and reserved um and i always went out of my way to try and make him laugh goof off in front of him because uh if i could make him laugh i i I figured it to be a a victory same with the undertaker back in those days i if i could make the undertaker laugh man i was i was on top of the world because those were people you just couldn't make laugh they were so serious they you know as far as being about the business and everything they tried to present themselves as being so serious but I would always find ways to goof around, but, um, you know, it was great. It was fun riding with Steve. It was fun riding with Brett. The best thing about riding with Brett is I could always be late because he was the champion and I never got in trouble. If I went with Brett and I showed late, we showed up sometimes I would be dead trouble, but you know, it was, it was, it, it was fun. It was interesting. And, and, uh, it was definitely an experience. Awesome. Um, so your match before your release was um, a, a loss against uh, T.L. Hopper, um, who had a, obviously a similar tradesman gimmick. Um, so I just wondered, like, was it sort of a, a sort of a deliberate decision to to sort of have that match be against a, a, a sort of a mirrored gimmick, if you will? I don't think at that point any. I didn't, we didn't know I was leaving at that point. 
But that was kind of the final straw for me. That was, I was just so, um, aggravated and, uh, just tired of it. And to the point where I didn't even care anymore. And that when, when, uh, Tony Anthony TL Hopper asked me if he could shove the plunger in my face after after he beat me, I was like, who cares at this point? Go ahead. <laughs> and, he, and he did. But, yeah, that ended up being my last match just because at that point I was like, I'm so tired of this place. Yeah, so, yeah. But um, it just happened to be that. That was the last TV match. I think I did maybe a few more house shows. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was the last TV match. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's fascinating, really. I think um, you mentioned before as well around, obviously, you know, not everyone was making that much money at the time and, you know, maybe morale wasn't the best with WCW doing so well. What was uh, what was some of maybe your most interesting memories from being in the locker room at that time, you know, while WF or WWE was going through that kind of period of decline that it maybe, you know, wasn't used to before? Well, I mean, like I said, everybody tried to make it fun. We tried to always have fun and, and get along and try to make each other laugh. But at the same time, everybody was always really tired and exhausted. Um, you know, you feel the effects of the road a whole lot more when you're not making a whole lot of money. And it was it was exhausting, man. We would wrestle, I don't even know how many days straight, and then go home for two or three days and go back out for three weeks or two months and you know, it was just a crazy schedule and um, we tried to make the best of it. That's that's all we could do. But we, we definitely tried to, even though some guys you liked or didn't like, we all tried to get along and support each other and, and put on the best show possible to try and kind of bring people back uh, to watching wrestling so we could all eventually make more money. I just I just happened to miss it, miss it by about a year. Because I left about a year before the Attitude Era took off. <laughs> so um, I mean, as you said, timing is everything. In the timing is everything. Yeah. Um, can I ask? Is it is it true that um, you requested your release in order to go to law school? Is it is it sort of truth to that sort of career that sort no. of career change? No. no, no, I did not request my release to go to law school. I remember it was there was a period of time where I was just. I actually was reading the LSAT uh, study guide to study for the the law school entrance exam because I was thinking about going to law school maybe someday. Uh, But I made the mistake of sitting there because there's a lot of downtime in the locker room at TVs. And I just made the mistake of pulling it out and reading it in the locker room. And somebody asked me a question about it. And I said, oh, yeah, maybe in a couple of years I'll go to law school or something. Right. Somebody, they ran back to the office and stooged me off. And Shane McMahon came running up. He goes, what are you talking about leaving? You're getting it. I was like, I'm not leaving. I just I've been studying this book. That's all. I'm not going anywhere. I said, don't believe everything you hear. But um, I think that's probably one of the last things that uh, Jim Ross remembered about me. I know he brought it up in, a, in an interview, but. No, I wasn't. I did not ask for my release to go to law school. Not at all. The only, and I never even asked, well, I did at one point. What happened was it was getting so bad that I would have these meetings with Vince and uh, he would be standing there talking to me with Jerry Briscoe next to him. And I would tell Vince, I'd look, go, look, if you're not going to use me any better than this, just send me home, which is probably the dumbest thing you could say to Vince McMahon. But, um, you know, he went with it. He rolled with it. He bared with me. And 
um, I think what ended up happening is they finally got sick of me complaining. And he told one day Jerry Briscoe came up at a TV and said, Vince said, you can go on home. And at that point I said, I expect a full release because I just started a new one year rollover and he just kind of started stuttering. He just, <laughs> he didn't even know what to say, but then I went home and I sat there and JJ Dillon called me and, um, I said, look, I don't care about a release. I mean, I'm not going anywhere else. I'm just going to take some time off. I had like eight months left on my contract. So I just hung around down in Miami for a while and was up to no good. And, and, um, you know, that was kind of the end, but, uh, that's how it happened. It was, it was kind of a two way thing. I was ready to leave and then they just expedited my, my decision for me when <laughs> they got sick of hearing me complain. Well, that's uh yeah that's really interesting I didn't really you know you, you, you kind of hear these stories around you know like you know as, as we brought up then around or you wanted to go to law school and stuff so it's it's nice to finally have the record kind of straight on that is there ever um was there never like a time where you thought obviously in the attitude era or you know even with like the rise of wcw like did you ever try and come back to the business at that at that point to get back into it or yeah, I went back at one point. I went, I called Bruce and uh, actually Jim Ross called me and said they had an idea for me, but he wouldn't tell me what it was because he needed to ask the other wrestlers involved in the angle or in the gimmick or something. And and um, all he said was, I need you to get as big as possible. He was like, I'm not telling you to do steroids, but that's basically what he was telling me. But he said, get as big as possible. And But the problem with me at that time was I was on drugs, other drugs, drinking alcohol, doing drugs. And I was pretty big and pretty muscular, but I was really in no condition to work on the road or anything. And they made me try out again. They ended up bringing me in and making me try out again, which was, you know, like the ultimate insult. But um, it didn't work out because I also had a trial for WCW about a week, somewhere within a week or two of that tryout. So neither one of them called me because I think I pissed them both off by doing both trials. You know, it's funny when those tryouts, I set up both tryouts and um, I asked two people for advice, Bret Hart and, and Steve Austin. And Bret Hart said, uh, I would, he said, I do them both. He goes, that's the professional thing, doing both. And Steve Austin said, you better pick or choose who you want to be with and who you like, because these are very vindictive people who said, you need to choose one and do that one. Because if you do both, they're going to be pissed off. And I listened to the wrong guy. <laughs> so I went and did both. And that's exactly what happened, what Austin said. And, and neither one of them ended up calling. So for like sure. I said, I was going off the deep end, man. So I was, mm -hmm. I was really not, I was unemployable really at the time. Did you ever find out what that gimmick or like what they may have brought you in for, or did you just never find that? No, out? no. But it was right around the time of Kane. But mm. I don't know. That was that was probably I think that was the gimmick, the next big gimmick that I saw come out. But it could have been anything. Who knows? Yeah. Well. Yeah. We, um, we obviously we did see uh, reappear for for WWE at WrestleMania 17 um, in the what, what was called the I believe the gimmick battle royal. Um, so how was it sort of seeing everyone again, other people certainly people you knew again, and and sort of how was the the sort of environment at, at that point at that return? 
Uh, it was interesting, man. It was a different place. You know, everybody was making more money and more famous and uh, that changes a lot of people. And yeah. also though, on the, more over than that was, I was, like I said, I was still messed up. I was living down in Miami and all messed up on drugs. And so when I went up there, I had no business. I was in no condition to work, but it was easy because all I had to do was walk around and punch and kick for a few minutes and then get clotheslined out by doing the clown. So it wasn't difficult, but I was embarrassed by my state uh, at that point and um, didn't really run around and talk to a lot of people. I kind of kept to myself. I mean, I talked to Austin and some of those guys that I had worked with, but just briefly. And uh, then I pretty much just stayed in the locker room and, you know, didn't come out very much until it was time to wrestle. Uh, so that, that was kind of, but it was still a great experience walking out there, man, in front of that sold out Astrodome was insane. 65,000 people. I I never saw a crowd like that. So it was, and it was great to meet Bobby, the brain Heenan and, and, uh, Gene Okerlund as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, so had you never obviously met them because they were in WCW at the time? Um, how, how did they, how did they kind of, you know, receive you? I, it was like I knew them. It was like we were best friends for years. They just wow. sat down and started talking to me like, you know, like they knew me. They were very nice. They weren't standoffish. They, they, you know, there was no ego there. They were just happy to be there, too. I mean, they just, so and it was we rode back to the hotel on the bus together from the building. So it was uh, it was just a great conversation. Uh, both of them were great dudes. And uh I knew I got to see Gene a few more times much later on, right before he passed away. Uh, we did some conventions and meet and greets together, and it was great to see him and, and talk to him again. But they were both really nice guys. Yeah, no, you could you could tell. Um, obviously, they've got hell of reputations <laughs> for you know many things, but yeah, they were definitely uh, you know uh, seem to be super nice guys. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of the product today? Do you, do you watch it at all? Um, and do you have any thoughts on it today? You know, I had not watched it for a long time, and um, I'm just starting to kind of slowly get back into watching some of it and uh, finding because it's interesting to me to see what's going on with WWE with with Triple H making mm-hmm. calling the shots. Um, that it, it's it's kind of gotten my interest because it was just status quo for such a long time. It was Vince McMahon's old mindset that wasn't changing, you know, the storylines and the characters and who was getting pushed and who wasn't and the way, the way they handled characters, a lot of them the wrong way, but it's, um, you can see that uh, Triple H is making some moves already that are based on what's best for business. When he says best for business, he means best for business. So uh, in that respect, I like watching it. I watch a little bit of AEW and all that stupid drama that's been going on apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting. I mean, I really don't care uh, about some of those guys, but um, I just, you know, I like to watch good wrestling. And uh, and um, if, if they put on a good show and a good wrestling match and it isn't like 45 minutes of talking and 10 minutes of wrestling, then, uh, then you got my attention. So I am coming back to watching uh, – some wrestling nowadays, but I didn't watch it for, I'll tell you the moment I quit watching it was, um, was it Katie Vick thing where Triple H climbed into the damn casket? 
Yes. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, that, that was it, man. That was it for me. I said, I don't think I'm going to watch this anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know if that was the Vince Russo era or what, but that was just that moment. I don't yeah, even think it was, which is, is, is the crazy thing. I think this was post. I think he had left already, didn't he? Yeah, which is even yeah. crazier. But, yeah. but I was I was just like, man, if this is what it's become, then I'm not going to watch it anymore. So I didn't watch it for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, it goes down in history for a lot of the wrong reasons. That's... Wow, that was bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the, um, after wrestling, one of the things you moved into was um, was working with special needs children. Um, which is a, a, a obviously an amazing thing. I, I just wondered, sort of, if you could sort of tell us how you decided to get into that. Well, interestingly, when I was growing up, I had learning disabilities. I had difficulty learning. Um, I had severe what they call ADHD. I had severe AD, yeah. ADHD back in the seventies and eighties. They, they just they called it hyperactivity. They didn't call it ADHD, but um, I just remembered all the all the challenges I had in just trying to learn to read. I mean, I could I didn't learn basic reading until fourth and fifth grade, but then when I did learn it, it took off. You know, it was just that's that's how the brain of a person with ADHD works. And um, I wanted the opportunity to work with kids and give them the chances that I I felt like I never had when I was a younger kid because it, you know education system was just so different. Um, the way they handled people with learning disabilities and stuff like that, it was, it was just a lot different. And I also had a kind of, I had insight as to how they thought and how they learned. So it made it easy. And I was, I was good at it. I was a good teacher for many years. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I, I, I had no idea, obviously, that you had to, you know, that you went through stuff like that yourself, but um, mm -hmm. a wonderful way to obviously to give back as well and to, to help those from your own experiences is such a wonderful thing. Um, obviously, we were we were saddened to learn, obviously, off the back of your, your staph infection, you also had kind of, you know, was it your foot or like your lower part of your leg, obviously, um, had to be amputated. Um, how how difficult was it coming come to that decision to do that? And, and how, how are you doing overall today? Well, again, it was, it was during the time I had, um, when that had, it was 2013 when I had it amputated, uh, about 2009, you remember I told you the wrestling, there was years where I had drug problems and stuff. And then I got off drugs and I went and I moved to Tennessee, became a school teacher and did great for six or seven years. And, and, uh, then I started to get this foot injury and I made the mistake of starting to take painkillers again. And I had a, what they call a relapse. And everything started falling apart, you know, I was barely hanging on to the job and all these things. Well, I ended up eventually getting arrested because I was out there running around with all the wrong people and, you know, buying and selling pills to get what you needed because you're so addicted. But anyway, I ended up having a surgery on that foot and really not following doctor's orders the first surgery because I was more worried about running around and trying to find more pills. So it fell apart and it was full of metal and, and stuff and it fell apart. And about almost two years later, I kind of hobbled around on it for two years, like Marty Jannetty. I don't know if you ever saw his ankle, but mine was a lot like his. It was just turned to the side like that, you know, it was gnarled, but I had a second surgery. And after the second surgery, I, unbeknownst to me, I got a staph infection deep inside and that just kind of ruined everything. Now, 
when the decision was made, I went, I had to go back to the hospital and they put me on, yeah, I was in there on antibiotics for like two weeks and he just kind of gave me the options. He told me he could clean it up the best he could and fuse it together. And, um, I wouldn't have any real, real mobility, but I would still be in pain probably. And, or he could take the foot and get me fit with a prosthetic. And, and after I got used to it, I would be out of pain. When I heard out of pain at that point, that's all I needed to hear because like I was, again, I was still on drugs too. So I was kind of like, yeah, I cut my foot off. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a, it was, I won't say it was on a whim, but it was a, probably I put a lot less thought into it than I should. And again, when I heard out of pain, because the amount of pain I had been in for years was ridiculous. So that was when I made the decision. Um, and it wasn't as easy as he made it sound. It was difficult, especially in the beginning, man, when you're getting used to that prosthetic for the first time and the muscles in your leg have to atrophy and kind of shrink away. And that whole process is just very painful where you squeeze it into the prosthetic and all these different things. But um, my leg is doing great now. Um, I know I've had some other health issues here in the last few years, but they're getting better as well. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a challenge. Um, probably two years ago, I had an episode where I got an infection on the end of that leg and I had to go back in and they had to redo it. They had to cut it, more bone off of it and clean up another infection. But ever since I did that one, it's been perfect. I haven't had any issues. So I'm happy about that. I hope that continues. But yeah, it was a challenge. And, um, you know, a lot of it was self-inflicted. And, you know, it's just what well, we in, in, in addiction recovery, we call the wreckage of our past. That's part of the wreckage of my past. I just have to come to terms with, you know, I made a lot of stupid choices for many years and that was one of them. And uh, it cost me a lot, but you know, I'm still here and uh, I'm glad of that because I could have easily become one of those wrestling statistics and uh, I'm happy I did. You know, we, we kind of chuckle when, when I say I left about a year before the attitude era but if i really think about it and i'm being honest which i have become very honest with myself here recently in the past several years but if i was still there during the attitude era i might have been one of the dead people because <laughs> they quit drug testing people then when yeah. they stopped drug testing i would have been the first one to, to get you know really bad off because um i was one of the biggest partiers there you know and i I was at the bar every night uh, taking pills, doing all that stuff. And the thing about it was when I got, when I went home, I didn't have a wife or kids. So I continued to party with my buddies and everybody else went home and they had to be a, a father, dad and a, and a husband for at least a few days, if not a week. And they would dry out where I just went full blast. So, you know, it, uh, I've learned a lot of life lessons, uh, the hard way but it's all good, man. I'm still here. And now I'm, I have the opportunity now to try and help other people that are going through similar things. So I work for a drug court program here in Tennessee where I live and um, people with drug charges and drug addiction issues, I, I help them and hopefully break the cycle of them going in and out of jail constantly because of drugs or, or alcohol charges. So I find myself I guess right where I'm supposed to be now after all has been said and done.
That's a, wow. it's an amazing way of looking at it. Um, obviously, you mentioned about the, um, the the recovery side of things. I mean, how, how are you finding that? Do you find them um, because it's you can they can sort of or they are aware that you can relate in terms of the addiction side. Do you find it's um, it's helpful to get through to people that way? A hundred percent, yes. I mean, they they got to trust you. There has to be a mutual trust and a mutual respect. And when you when they come in. And, and I'm usually the first person that interviews them. I'll talk to them if they're at the jail or whatever, I'll sit down and do an interview with them about the program. And when I tell them I'm a graduate of the program, they immediately change their demeanor and they understand, okay, this guy's one of us. Yeah. And uh, they're willing to talk and they're willing to accept your help. So that makes a huge difference. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a labor of love for me now. It's just what I'm supposed to be doing and I enjoy every minute of it. It's not always easy, you know, it's addiction is a nasty thing and it's only getting worse with the craziness out there with fentanyl, this drug called fentanyl and more heroin and people are dying left and right. But um, we're trying to save as many as we can and we're doing the best we can. And, um, but it's, it is where I'm supposed to be now. No, that's amazing. That's, yeah, absolutely amazing. You know what you're doing and, and, and giving back in that way. We can't obviously commend you enough. It's it's wonderful to hear. Um, obviously, you may be able to tell from our accents uh, we're from the UK. Um, just just quickly, we wanted. Oh, to I know, thought you were from New Jersey. <laughs> Easy mistake to make. We, for some reason, we're quite popular in in, in uh, New Jersey. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's because of the accent. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, you know. Obviously, I'm assuming you've been over here with the WWF in the past. Um, have you got any kind of, you know, fond memories of your time over here in the UK? Yeah, uh, drinking in a real Irish pub in Ireland. That was one. Um, yeah, the other one was London, uh, the Royal Albert Hall. I mean, that was an amazing mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. to wrestle. And uh, the people of England were just, the people of, of Great Britain, generally speaking, were just always great fans, man. It was always fun to go there. But even during the down years here in, the, here, in the, here in America, man, over there in England and in Germany, those, you guys had the greatest fans. We always looked forward to going overseas. So, yeah, those were the great, those were great times. That's good to know. I mean, there's so much. Um, I think because the the exposure for us is a, like we get to see it on TV a lot, but like to to see them live is is uh, a lot rare, a lot more rare, should I say? So it's um, I think the reaction is always electric, or the atmosphere as as an audience member is, is always electric. It's brilliant. It was definitely electric. You got that right. So um, is it is it true that you still do conventions? And if so, you know, is that something we might get the opportunity to see you over in this side of the pond again? Yes, I do conventions, and yes, I would love to come overseas. Um, I am currently working on what I have to do, whatever it's going to take for me to get a passport and come over there, because part of the all the craziness I went through when I got arrested, I got two felonies on my record. So uh, as part of that, it's a little bit different to be able to travel out of the country. It's still not, it's not difficult, and I'm completely finished with every all of my requirements. I was done with everything, my sentence and all, a while ago, but... Um, it just takes a little bit of extra effort to get a passport and be able to travel out of the country. I mean, some countries won't let you come in if you're a felon. Some will, but but um, yes, I'm working on it. Uh, that was a long answer. <laughs> it only took a short answer, but I really do want to come over there and do some conventions because I've had a lot of people ask, a lot of promoters, and a lot of interest. So um, yes, 
hopefully very soon within the very near future awesome a lot of fans as well we'll definitely <laughs> want to see you over here that's for sure right um probably one of the kind of last questions from us um were you aware of danny devito's portrayal as a trash man on always sunny in philadelphia and if you did see it just wonder what, what your reaction was to that um i've just seen the clip like from youtube and on tiktok and all that stuff people play it all the time and i love it i think it's hilarious i mean I, every time somebody shows it somewhere it, it comes back to me a million times over with everybody tagging me and showing me um but uh yeah that was interesting that was interesting uh it just so happened they decided to make him i wonder if whoever came up with that idea in the writing room uh, knew of duke the dumpster or they just came up with that character on a whim for a professional wrestler but yeah, but yeah it was funny <laughs> it was the him. so um just before we let you go uh i suppose lastly we'd just like to ask if uh we could let our sort of our listeners uh, or followers know where they can sort of keep in touch with yourself and what you're doing um or even in terms of uh, how they can get access to merch and that sort of thing yeah, a lot of what I do, uh, I'm doing stuff on social media. I do a couple of podcasts. Um, right now I'm doing two, soon to be three different podcasts. The one is a recovery podcast. I do on Friday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time here in the United States. It's just simply called the recovery podcast. And we we talk to people in recovery uh, from drug addiction and substance abuse, and we just have discussions. And it's always a great conversation. Um, that goes through my Facebook page, uh, Mike Drosy. It also goes through Duke the Dumpster official uh, YouTube live, and it goes uh, through my Twitch live as well. Um, but I'm kind of running them all through the same pages. I'm going to make separate pages for all of these. But the other one, the second one is called Trash Cam Live. Now, that's more fun. That's Duke the Dumpster talking about wrestling or other funny stuff and having a good time and goofing off and uh, making the people laugh. And that, again, it's on my Facebook page, Mike Drosy. It's also and it's on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern time here in the United States. And um, it goes also to YouTube and Twitch. Uh, but a new one I'm getting ready to come up with is going to be with my brother, uh, John Drosy, who's a technical genius when it comes to producing music and videos and we are going to kind of create a podcast it's it's still in the very early stages of planning but we're thinking of calling it the drosy brothers podcast and it's just going to be you know kind of how to 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 set up um and improve on your life and try to start really reaching if you you have dreams and goals how to really kind of step by step go about attaining those working towards those goals and attaining them and and adding into the mix though of course the current state of things with social media my brother's got whiz like i said so adding in all the things that people need to do to try and really get out there using social media and and, and all the other forms of technology uh th that's kind of the rough idea of what it's going to be about but it's also going to be about other things but yeah the drothy drosy brothers podcast will be coming hopefully soon we'll have a separate youtube page for that and and everything that's going to be different but like i said it's in the early stages but yeah recovery podcast trash cam live and eventually the drosy brothers we will be out there that sounds amazing and i'm available for any any conventions or meet and greets you can hit me up in messenger that's the easiest way in facebook people can message me i'm also on instagram duke the dumpster official you know any of those places message me and uh we can make it happen
Awesome. Oh, thank you very awesome, much. Awesome, man. Like, honestly, this has been such an awesome interview. Uh, genuinely appreciate you sharing everything, obviously, about, you know, your own personal journey and um, excited to, to hear the stuff that you're up to now as well, and especially a third podcast on the way is uh, super awesome. So, honestly, thank you again. We, we genuinely appreciate it. Well, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a great interview. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.